just before David comes to speak to us, um, a reading, uh, our reading this morning is taken from Matthew's, Go- Matthew's Gospel, and it's chapter 18, beginning to read at verse 21 and through to verse 35. That's Matthew chapter 18, beginning to read at 21 and reading through to verse 35. And, and this morning I'm reading out of the Passion Translation. Passion Translation. Later, Peter approached Jesus and said, How many times do I have to forgive my fellow believer who keeps offending me? Seven times? Jesus answered, Not seven times, Peter, but seventy times seven times. The lessons of forgiveness in heaven's kingdom realm can be illustrated like this. There was once a king who had servants who borrowed money from the royal treasury. He decided to settle accounts with each of them. As he began the process, it came to his attention that one of his servants owed him one billion dollars. So he summoned the servant before him and said, pay me what you owe. When his servant was unable to repay the debt, the king ordered that he be sold as a slave, along with his wife and children, and every possession he owned as payment toward his debt. The servant threw himself face down at the master's feet and begged him for mercy. Please, be patient with me. Give me more time and I will repay you what I owe. Upon hearing his pleas, the the king had compassion on his servant and released him and forgave him his entire debt. No sooner had the servant left When he met one of his fellow servants, who owed him $20,000, he seized him by the throat and began to choke him, saying, You better pay me right now everything that you owe me. And his fellow servant threw himself face down at at his feet and begged him, Please, be patient with me. If you give me more time, I'll pay you what I owe. But the one who had his debt forgiven stubbornly refused to forgive that which he owed. And his fellow servant was thrown into prison and demanded he remain there until he had paid his debt in full. When his associates saw what was going on, they were outraged and went to the king and told him the, the whole story. And the king said to him, You scoundrel, is this the way that you respond to my mercy? Because you begged me, and I forgave you a massive debt that you owed me. Why didn't you show the same mercy to your fellow servant that I showed to you? In a fury of anger, the king turned him over to the prison guards to be tortured until all his debt was repaid. In the same way, My Heavenly Father will deal with any of you who do not release forgiveness from your heart toward your fellow believer. Several years ago now, uh, during the months of May and September, Christine and I, that's my wife, had the privilege of staying down in London for uh, two separate occasions. One of them was for pure pleasure. And the other one was to attend the Baptist Assembly, which was that year being held, of all places, 
in Methodist Central Hall. But that's Baptist for you. And I have to say that during that week, I spent quite a bit of time looking back, thinking about London's past history. Each time we went into Methodist Central Hall, we passed a large statue of John Wesley. And even that got me looking back, thinking about the books that I've read about John Wesley and his life and witness. But once you get in the mood for looking back, the sky's the limit. Some of us can go back a long way. No doubt some of us can recall the names of the faithful ones who no longer worship here at Lung. Many men and women who, right now, this morning, as we meet here, will be worshipping around the throne in heaven. Men and women who've played a significant part in the life of this church. Men and women who had a strong desire burning inside them to unashamedly preach the gospel to the people who were living here in this gap between Waterfoot and Burnley. Men and women who would never have held anything back concerning the gospel. Men and women who would have spoken out loudly whenever they felt strongly about something, never watering anything down so as not to cause offence. Men and women who didn't ever mince their words as they ministered to to the people of this area in both word and deed. And men and women who were obviously cast iron sure of the one and true foundation for their faith. And we thank God for that. And we thank God for them. When I turn to scripture, I find that they were not the only ones who were standing firm. Because in scripture, we, we, meet, we read of many who stood firm on important matters. Peter was one, Peter the Apostle. He was one who really spoke his mind. Whilst the other disciples were thinking things, Peter was the man who said them. He was a a blunt man, but somehow he always seemed to manage to echo what the others around were actually thinking at that time. One of those times, if you remember, was when the rich young ruler was there. And they were feeling, I have to say, they were feeling somewhat miffed because everybody knew that he'd turned his back on Jesus. And so Peter said to Jesus, Lord, we, we've left everything and followed you. What will we get out of it? And from Jesus came that lovely teaching about the blessings that come to those who put him first. Another example was in the Acts of the Apostles when Peter was on the roof having a nap and he had a vision, a vision of unclean animals and a voice said to him, rise Peter, kill and eat. And Peter leapt in with, no Lord, I've never eaten anything common 
or unclean. And the message came back to him, don't call common what God has cleansed. Peter then was man enough to speak his mind and honest enough to ask important and searching questions and thank God that he was. Now, our chapter this morning, chapter 18 in Matthew, is full of demanding teaching. And that teaching is all about discipleship. In the first few few verses, Jesus talks about a part of Christian life that foxes many of us. It's all about being humble. From verse 7, he talks about the demands of living a pure life, including that well-known verse about cutting off your hand if it causes offence. In verses 10 to 14, we read about going out to seek those who are lost. And then the crunch from verse 15 onwards, it speaks of how to be reconciled to your brother, how to live a life of forgiveness. Peter, as we heard from Graham, Peter blurts out, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. He thought he was really being magnanimous. He probably knew that bit of the Old Testament where Job speaks about God forgiving twice or possibly three times. After all, seven was much better than that. In fact, it was thought of as the perfect number. But back comes the answer to him. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or in some some versions, 70 times seven. It doesn't matter which number it is, really. It's not a mathematical figure. Jesus is really saying, go on and on and on forgiving. And why does he say that? Simply because the forgiveness that comes from the Calvary cross goes on and on forever. There's an incident back in Genesis chapter 4 where Lamech said, Cain has been avenged seven times. But Lamech, 77 times, that's in verse 24. And isn't that what exactly what's happening in the world today? People feel that they just have to take revenge. People just have to get their own back, time and time again. I don't know whether you've ever heard this phrase or not, but there is a phrase that says, don't get angry, get even. Doesn't that phrase remind us of the so many of the troubled parts of our world right now? But the message from the cross, today and every day, the real challenge for those who follow Jesus Christ today is first of all to receive that forgiveness which is offered and then to outwardly demonstrate that forgiveness by themselves being forgiving. Remember, at the end of the chapter, our Lord makes himself so clear. Graham read, in his anger, 
his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Friends, if we are not forgiving people, it shows that we've really either never been forgiven or that we've completely moved away from the reality of the cross. The message, after all, of the cross is a message of change, of being changed from sinners into forgiven sinners. But how also we need to be sinners who can forgive others. Forgiven sinners and forgiving sinners. Now this passage, of course, is a parable. Parables, of course, are stories. And this one continually focuses on the message of the cross, as we see now. First of all, verses 23 to 27, an offer made, an offer of forgiveness. And the picture here is a picture of God as king. Fairly common to use that expression in the Bible. Scripture is quite clear. All of us as individuals, without help and individually, will have to stand before the judgment seat of God and account for what we've done whilst we've lived here on earth. And here we have a man in verse 24 who owed a silly sum of money. It's an amount that you can't calculate. But the message it tells is so simple. It tells us that we all owe a debt to God. A debt which we can never repay. You may remember another incident where Jesus told the story of two people who both owed a debt. One of them owed 500. The other just owed 50. Which of them, of the two of them, would be the happier when they'd been forgiven? Well, of course, it would be the one who owed the most, the 500. And there's a challenge to us right now. There are some of us who've almost forgotten with the passing of time the size of the debt that we have already been forgiven. Friends, what debt do you, do you owe to God right now? Well, let me suggest that you owe him, or I should say we owe him, a debt of love. Do we really love him with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our strength? Do we owe him, we, we owe him a debt of service? We owe him a debt of prayer. God forbid that we should ever sin against God by not praying enough. And friends, that's so easy to say from this exalted position up here, but much harder for us to do. And what about the debt to evangelize, to go and make disciples? Perhaps we can begin to see the size 
of the debt that we owe to God. But in verse 25 here of this chapter, the master orders the man to be sold. Nothing wrong with that under Old Testament law. But was there going to be any small act of penitence before the master was ready to forgive? Well, yes, there was, because the servant fell down on his knees, asking for a show of patience. I'll pay back everything, he said. But look at verse 27. The master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. Friends, this morning, we need to be absolutely certain that we understand fully the tremendous cost of the cross. It's not that God said, all right, I'll forgive you. I'll let you off. That would have been too easy. God could have done that. He could have said that. But he didn't. In fact, our sin cost him dearly because it cost him the life of his son. God was in heaven and Jesus was on earth. And Jesus heard a voice crying, God heard the voice crying out, Why did you forsake me? It wasn't like Abraham and Isaac when there was a last minute reprieve. At Calvary, God was paying the price and Jesus was paying the price. The Son of God was made sin for us. And because of that, the debt is now cleared. Micah, the Old Testament prophet, says, He has cast our sins into the depth of the sea. And the psalmist says, As far as the east is from the west. That's the second time this morning that's been mentioned, that verse. So far as he put our transgressions from us. Why did the psalmist say east from west and not north from south? Well, you can measure one of them, distances, but you can't measure the other. There's a measurable distance between north and south. Something like 12,416 miles. But where is east? And where is west? Nobody knows. It can't be measured. And that describes our sins. They've been cleared out of our sight. Gone. And because of that, we are completely forgiven. And he says to you right now this morning, and to me, we need to be able to forgive because if we don't he won't believe that we've accepted his forgiveness to us verses 28 to 30 and if you didn't know human nature as you do you'd have to say that at this point this story just goes over the top how could anybody having been forgiven like that man was, go out and find a friend who owed him just a little and not forgive him. Just crazy. But if we are not careful, 
We can show that we haven't grasped what it means to be forgiven. We can miss the point by a mile. How dare we refuse to forgive others when God has forgiven us so much? In this incident, not only was an opportunity given, but an opportunity was also lost. When the person fell at his feet and begged, be patient with me and I will pay you back, what did he do? He had him thrown into prison. What a golden opportunity was missed to show that he was a changed man, a forgiven man. But you see, unfortunately, he just forgot that he'd been forgiven. And when Paul writes to the Galatians, he says that we should restore the penitent sinner, never forgetting, never forgetting that we too are sinners. The same in Titus, we were urged to remember that we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by passions and pleasures. Friends, if we really believe this morning this message of complete forgiveness from God, if we really believe in our hearts that Jesus on the cross paid the penalty, then we also need to offer our forgiveness to others too. Thirdly, forgiveness offered, but refused. I find parables interesting. Don't you think that right at the end that the master should really have forgiven that servant yet again. After all, hadn't Jesus been teaching that we ought to go on and on forgiving? But what happens? He gets handed over for the torture treatment until he's paid back every penny, or in your version, dollar. Jesus hammers home the point, beyond all doubt, in the last verse of the chapter. Because he says this, he said, this is how my Heavenly Father will treat you. And of course, that verse is speaking about the coming judgment of God. Those servants, they were really indignant at this. After all, even today, the whole world knows that Christians should be forgiven. For forgiving. They might not know Jesus but somehow, by heck, they know that his followers, how they should behave, how they, what they should be like. And here the message comes back to the master. And the master says to the servant, all right, if you want it on those terms, you can have it. James 2 tells us, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. What then is God's justice? Because here we have it on excellent authority from Jesus himself. He's saying that God's love and God's forgiveness do have a limit. Some people will sadly dwell on the God is love idea, which to them means that's great. Everyone will get to heaven. We had a man worshipping with us at Acre Mill a few years ago who quite definitely believed that, forcefully believed that. 
And I have to say, it's what I call a good idea. It's a theory that I could quite easily live with. I could come back next Sunday and preach it. The only problem is, it wouldn't be true. It's completely alien to the whole of New Testament teaching. Because we still have the opportunity to reject all or part of that teaching. Surely the demonstration that we really believe what we do isn't that we come to worship every Sunday morning. Neither for me is it that I once signed a decision card at one of Billy Graham's crusades in Manchester. The proof that we really believe is our changed life. By their fruits you shall know them, the Bible says. And someone more recently wrote that the only Bible these days that 90% of the world ever read is sadly not a Gideon Bible, but you and me. So when Christians are able to forgive, others know that, that they're different when they don't or when they can't. They show that they're no different at all. Let's just finally recall one incident in the New Testament. It's when the woman who committed adultery was caught in the act. Remember, they said to Jesus, shall we stone her because of her sin? Shall we do exactly what the law says? And what was the reply from Jesus? Well, I'll tell you. Well, I'll let you do better than that. I'll let you tell me, because you know the answer. Jesus said, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And the adulterer turned to Jesus. And Jesus said to her, is there nobody here to condemn you? She said there wasn't. Then came those great words then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And we must never say the one without the other. Jesus just didn't just say, neither do I condemn you. Neither did he say, you are forgiven. What he did say was this, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That was her motivation, to go out and live a totally new life. The last thing we must do as Christians is to just condemn. Maybe the Christian church has already done much too much of that in the past. We simply want the sinning to stop. God forbid that ever that we should ever treat sin lightly what we must do is treat forgiveness seriously friends you remember on that day of pentecost when men and women were filled with fire and enthusiasm and life that's how god expects us to be right now after all one desire must remain constant over the next weeks, months and years. It must be our desire as a church here, planted by God, will recognise that the people 
outside of this church are a people truly different to us and they must come to realise that they are that we are a people different to them changed by the presence in our lives of the Lord Jesus Christ may God continue to bless this fellowship here as it continues to do the work and the witness that God has given you to do. Amen.